you hear, we know that you are here, God. We ask that you work in our hearts, in our lives as we open up your word. Meet us here in this place. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, this is an easy question. Brothers or sisters? If you have a brother or sister, raise your hand. Almost everyone, maybe, has a brother or sister. Now, if you've ever experienced, and you're willing to admit it, if you've ever experienced sibling rivalry, let's see a hand. All right, so we've got a, we've got a little theme going. Good. Well, today's story is about, is about sibling rivalry, right? And while there are siblings that are fortunate enough to become best friends, it's actually common, really pretty normal even, for siblings to fight. I mean, like, fight, fight. Chokeholds flying things, mean words, anything that hurts is fair game, right? And so experts actually say that it's pretty common for siblings to go back and forth between loving each other and detesting each other. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Um, and that's pretty normal. So if that's you, you're, you're in good company. Now the reasons for sibling rivalries are more varied than I have time for in a 55-minute sermon. But the truth is that brothers and sisters feel like they have to compete for everything, right? They feel like they're competing for things like toys to affection, from food to love. And so from a parental perspective, fighting is really difficult to watch. And anyone of us who experienced this in a household of conflict is like just stressful for everybody, right? So when my brother and I were kids, and I was hoping he was going to come this morning, he probably stayed away because I told him that I was going to be talking about him. Um, we actually fought all the time. And so he was two years younger than me, so I was always older and bigger than him. Um, and he may have been younger and smaller, but he's also really clever. And so anything that could be thrown at me became a weapon to be used against me. And so if I was ever going to get my hands on him, I knew that I was going to have to go through like a barrage of shoes and bats and sticks and rocks and knives. I mean, you name it, my brother threw at me when I was a kid. And so every time I got hit by something. And so we finally devised this system of, we figured this out. We devised a system that worked pretty well. I remember for Christmas, my parents gave us a set of boxing gloves, right? And so we had one set of boxing gloves for two brothers. So since he was the younger one, he got the right hand and I got the left. And we had this huge basement, and so we set up a boxing ring in the basement, and we would just go at it, like, you know, settle our issues by punching each other in the face. And generally it worked because we never used the non-glove hand. We always kept it well, with the gloves, which was good. And so I was thinking about this. Whenever my brother or myself would complain to my parents that we were being treated unfairly, my dad had this, like, response. He still uses it to this day all the time, Right? My dad would always, like, with a straight face, he would look at us and he would say, the reason you're being treated unfairly is because I love the other brother more. <laughs> and so we knew he was kidding around, uh, sort of, <laughs> like for people that know my dad. Um, it usually diffused the situation. It made us laugh. And whatever was going on, we'd laugh it off, and that would probably be the end of it. Well, today, story, the parents actually did prefer one sibling over the other. My brother and I knew that he was kidding around. Right? But these parents in today's text are actually going to prefer one son over the other. Dad's going to prefer the older son. Mom's going to prefer the younger. And so conflict between these two brothers is going to start immediately, before they're even born. The supremacy, uh, the battle for supremacy between these two brothers actually lasted 
a lifetime. So we're going to kind of listen in on the beginning of their story. As we're looking at Abraham's family tree, we're kind of walking through parts of Genesis. And so we get today to Genesis 25, 19 to 34, and it, and it, it's, it goes like this. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padamaran, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthrights. The word of the Lord. And so this is another one of those, like, just scandalous Genesis stories that we look at and we kind of find them morally objectionable. Like, there's some issues in this story. But here's the thing. The story never wavers. It never apologizes. It's not embarrassed by the parent's blatant preference of one son to the other. It's not concerned about the oracle of God electing the younger to serve, or the older to serve the younger. And so we bring these kind of modern sensibilities to the story, but our narrator actually has a lot bigger concerns that uh, he wants to deal with. And it's about this newly formed nation, and the fate it is, is at stake. God's ways being passed down generationally. This is what's at stake in this story. And so we come to the story, we accept it for what it is, trying to get at what the narrator, the writer of this story, is trying to to say is most important and try to learn something from it. And so the beginning thing to notice is that we have this theme that's running through uh, the matriarchs of Genesis, and the theme is barrenness, right? And so when the story begins, Isaac is 40 years old. He and Rebekah have no children. And so we learned last week, the theme of kind of where we were last week, was that Isaac was a little bit lost. He needed to marry up, and he actually did marry up when he found Rebekah. And it's through Rebekah... Uh, even though she was a person that probably worshipped other gods before meeting Isaac, she actually proves to be as devoted, if not more devoted, to the Lord's ways than Isaac himself. And so Isaac, acting on behalf of his wife, he prays for God to give them children. This generation that we get to here has to learn, just like the last one and the one before it, to trust God, to have 
faith. And so Isaac's prayers are answered. Rebecca becomes pregnant. But did anyone catch the ages? 20 years later. 20 years later. And this is this overlooked detail of the story that actually has a lot to say about patience and persistence in prayer. He prays and God answers the prayer 20 years later. And so God's timing is just that. It's God's timing. Rebecca is blessed with children, a gift from God, but ultimately this pregnancy of hers is not the one that she expected. And so I remember a day that took place about 20 years ago, like it was yesterday, and I was sitting at my desk. And at that time I was uh, serving as a youth pastor at Brentwood Presbyterian Church, and the phone call rang, and it was, hey, and there were tears and a little bit of mild hysteria. Is that fair? <laughs> All because of this tiny little black and white picture that she was holding in her hand. So she was pregnant. I had made all the previous doctor's appointments, but I missed this one because I had a really long commute. And I think it was the last one that I missed. Right? Yeah. That one didn't go over so well. And so I couldn't understand what the issue was. Right? I didn't understand what she was saying through the tears, so I just hopped in the car and I went home. And she shoves this little picture into my hand. And she said, look. And I said, look at what? And she points to this little white dot on the photograph. She said, look. And I saw the little white dot, but I didn't have any clue what it was. And then she points to a second little white dot. <laughs> and still, she says, there's two. And I said, two what? She says, what, like two little white dots? I, I, this was totally clueless. And it turns out that those two little white dots on this little black and white picture are two hearts, two babies, right? And so this is an, was an unforgettable day for both of us, I can assure you. You've never forgotten that day. Uh, it was very surprising. Um, and so we actually understand what Rebecca was going through when she learns this stuff from God. And so she feels this struggle within her as these twins within her are actually fighting for supremacy even in the womb, right? And so I remember coming home from work, one of my favorite things, I love to just put my hands on her stomach. And these two, one of them's here, one of them's in Oregon, they're just going at it. Punches and kicks and chokeholds. And if there were shoes, I'm sure they'd be flying. Um, but it was a battle in there, wasn't it? You, you got a lot more than I did. And so Rebecca knows that there's trouble brewing. She knows this right away. Um, and so she actually goes and takes this present condition of hers to the Lord in prayer. And God answers her prayer, but he answers it about more important matters, not the future, the present struggle that's going on, but God actually is addressing more important matters in the future. And this is what we learn when God speaks to her. He says, well, there's going to be two babies, surprise, right? But two nations or two peoples will emerge from these two sons, and there's going to be constant struggle between the two sons and the two people. And so the older will submit and serve the younger. And so she actually faced a really tough decision. Only one of her sons was going to be up to the task of ruling, up to the task of leading in God's ways, and it was to be the younger son, not the older. Now this goes against the fundamental conviction of ancient societies, right? It goes against this ancient law that's called primogeniture, a big word which just says that the oldest son is first in favor. The oldest son has the natural rights 
The oldest son succeeds the father in ruling and in inheritance. And so here's the thing about Esau. He's not being condemned. He's not unloved. There's something more important to God than the accident of birth order. Esau's not entitled just because he has the privilege of birth. God seems to be working an inversion of rights, which quite honestly we see all over Scripture. We remember Jesus saying things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, this is not something new in Scripture. It's all over the place. And so there's a bunch of differences between these two boys. And this is what the text implies, that Esau is born red and hairy little guy, and he looks like the earth. And Jacob is born grabbing at his brother's heel. Esau is going to think mostly about present things, immediate things, things that he needs right away, while Jacob grows up as a guy thinking about the future. They're really different people. And so Esau is a man's man, a skilled hunter and outdoorsman. Jacob grows up dwelling in tents, it says, probably a little bit more civilized than his older brother. And I think the most intriguing idea that I came across was that these two represent fundamentally different ways of being human. And I think this is what the narrator is trying to get through to us, that Esau represents this group of people that rely on their own skill and their own power. While Jacob and the Israelites represent a people that rely on God and God's ways. And I think that's exactly what the narrator is trying to get us to think about. Two sons, very different, but they each represent a totally different way And so I dug around with this a little bit, because when I looked at some of the Jewish historians, they actually say that it was the Edomites, or Esau's descendants, who later founded the Roman Empire. Personally, I find this fascinating, because it's characterized by a choice that this people would turn their back on the Lord. And it's fascinating that it was Rome, the enemy of the Jews in the time of Jesus, who shortly after Jesus' death, they destroyed the temple which led to 19 centuries of exile of the Jewish people from the Promised Land. This sibling rivalry that starts here in the womb actually had some really far-reaching historical consequences. To me, that's just mind-boggling. I'd like to dig a little bit further, because I don't know too much about it, but it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, Jacob, he's renamed Israel later on, is, of course, one of the great patriarchs who founded the nation of Israel. And as a nation, Israel is far from perfect, but it's characterized by its bearing witness to the Lord and God's ways. And so it's fascinating, the Roman Empire is no more, but little Israel still remains. Really interesting stuff. Now, birth order is obvious, but it's far from decisive. And that's what we're learning in this story. Now, Corinne, who's here, was born, what, 11 minutes ahead of Madison. But that doesn't mean that Katie and I have decided to give our vast wealth of our estate <laughs> only to Corinne because she was born first. Actually, quite the opposite. We'd probably give it all to Madison. <laughs> so, all right, now I owe you 10 bucks because I said if I did this to you, I'd give you 10 bucks, so I'll pay up later. Um, this is going to kill me because I can't help myself when you guys are home. So Rebecca faces this choice. It's a choice between two sons, two alternatives, two ways of living in the world. One of those ways is reliance on God. The other way is reliance on human skill. And so it's fascinating that it's as impossible as this choice would be for us today. The narrator does not waver at this choice and neither does Rebecca. She knows, as only a mother knows, that Jacob is the one 
that would have what it takes to pass down God's ways to the next generation. And so the reader of the story, when we come to it, we know that she's being guided by the oracle which God had spoken to her. That God is the one guiding and shaping this story. And so it's also interesting that the dad, Isaac, he prefers his manly son, Esau. Parents showing partiality like this, as we all know, is a recipe for disaster, right? Nearly everyone who reads this story sees the problem of parental favoritism. But what most of us miss when we first look at it, which I think is more important, is parental weakness. Isaac is not the man that his father Abraham was. And Isaac prefers the wrong son, and he prefers him for the wrong reasons. Isaac, like his son Esau, loves to eat. That's what it says. He likes immediate gratification. He's thinking with his stomach, not his brain. He's certainly not thinking with the eyes of faith. The kill from the hunt is what dad seems to care about. And so the brothers, they decide they're going to settle the issue of birthright and destiny themselves. What they don't understand is that their settlement, they're actually working out the purposes of God that the elder shall serve the younger. And so it's this deferred blessing versus immediate blessing with these two brothers. Esau wants food and he wants it right now. Jacob wants Esau's birthright. He wants his security. He wants his inheritance. Those of us who love food, like me, we feel for Esau. He says, it's just drama. He's like so dramatic. I feel like I'm dying. He's so hungry. He says he's dying. Well, I mean, I get that way almost every day, you know? (laughs) If I haven't eaten for a little while. So, I mean, I, I feel for this guy. Now, the text doesn't say that Jacob wasn't also hungry. It just implies that Jacob, unlike his brother, he could wait. He had eyes on the future, and Esau only had his eyes on the present. And so it was that Esau, this is the greatest term in this story, it says he despised his birthright. He rejects it. He devalues it. He finds it to be completely irrelevant. And what Esau had by his rights as the firstborn he gives away for a bowl of lentil soup. And so this story, it made me think about a couple different things. The first thing is, and we see this all over the place, that our future is only secured in God's sovereignty. And this this got me thinking quite a bit. And I'm a big, big advocate for human rights. And so when I was studying this passage of scripture, I actually went back to reread the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. It's 30 articles. They're brilliant. They represent this milestone document in the history of human rights, but as, as important as they are, or as important as our constitutional rights are, they still can't secure our future. Esau had all the rights of being firstborn, and these rights were the code of all the ancient civilizations around him as well. It wasn't just with them. But God had other plans. And God alone is sovereign and can secure our future. The next thing that I was thinking about really was a question. And that question that came to my mind was, what's our price? And here's what I mean. Esau, he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's it. His price was really, really, really low. It's sad. It's pathetic. He mortgages his future for immediate gratification. And so it strikes me as a pretty worthy question. 
The New Testament says that we're this new creation in Christ that God has remade us and is remaking us. What are the things in our lives that set us back? How do we mortgage our futures for a bowl of stew today? What are the immediate needs of ours that we're trying so hard to satisfy that we take our eyes off of the future promises of God? And finally, the last thing was, made me think about the ways in which God turns our ways and our world upside down. And so I went to the New Testament, I was looking at the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, because he actually talks about Jacob and Esau. And when you read it, it, you almost feel like Paul is wanting Jacob and Esau and Rebecca and Isaac to all sit down together and listen to this scripture from Exodus 33, 19, where Moses said, I will show compassion. God, God is saying this. Moses wrote it down. He says, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so it made me think, because this world is filled with people who insist on their own way, their own rights, their own privileges, even at the expense of others. Too many insist that their rights allow them to tread upon others who do not share those same rights. Those who only stand on their rights. They would never welcome the younger brother. They would never welcome the Jacobs of the world. They'll always favor the Esau's, the strong. The strong will try to eliminate the weak to preserve their privilege. And so here in this story, God has mercy on the younger, the wrong brother. God's promises will be passed down through Jacob, not Esau. Esau's rights are supplanted by the mysterious purposes of God. And so this great reversal has taken place, that God has a way of taking this world and turning the things that we think about on their head. God's often shown to be on the wrong side. We see this all over Scripture. God is on the side of the younger, the side of the underdog, the poor, the weak, the lame, the leper, the blind, the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the sinner. So many times God is on the side of the one who holds no rights, who has no privileges. And so it made me think about the rights that I have the rights that we have. Maybe our rights, maybe our privileges are not to simply satisfy our own appetites and desires, but rather maybe those rights and privileges should be used in order to offer God's blessings to those who do not have who do not have those rights or privileges. Maybe we're to subordinate our rights under God's rule to ensure that we're working according to God's purposes in the world and not simply for our own immediate desires and gratifications. It's something I think we learn from Esau. God says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And it's not always who we think. And so this sibling rivalry that began in the womb is far from over. These brothers are going to carry it all the way out until they are well into their adult lives. But right from the beginning, we know the outcome. That Jacob wins is all a part of this mysterious plan that God has. And so we're reminded that our life is secured by standing on God's promises. 
on God's way of living in the world. We're reminded that our most immediate needs may not really be the things that we need the most. We're reminded that God is God, that we are not. And this is one of the things that we're learning from Abraham's family tree. Will you join me in prayer? God, you alone are God, and we acknowledge that we are not. God, your ways are sovereign. In many ways, they're mysterious, but we trust, God, that your ways are good. That's what your word says. God, teach us to stand upon your promises and live in your ways. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, our tradition here.